This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of July 7th, 2018. Online searches are the perfect maze which can be designed by those with the authority to do so and can lead any researcher down any path they deem necessary or useful. News sources used to be more limited in their ability to carry out such control of public opinion, and court or public records were entered by hand, leaving a paper trail. There were still mazes which could be created, but at much less speed and with much more effort, and the paper trail making it much a much higher risk endeavor. Working on this project has required a strong ability to maneuver past intentionally set obstacles. Who set them? Whoever does not want some of this information told. All of the information? No. But that is one good reason for doing these podcasts or sharing the various stages of discovery. They leave a trail of what is being found and what is being presented at specific points in the uncovering of the story. They reveal the intentions of the creator, not only my intentions, but those creating the obstacles. One of the best offensive strategies used by those who want to cover their tracks is to make something so complicated no one will ever have enough time to check all the leads and determine which are the true facts. Such strategies have their noble beginnings in the practice of law. As consumers of news or stories told by others, we tend to want to identify reliable voices and then listen to them. We let them do the vetting. But unfortunately, with the communication technologies we have now, such vetting and established voices can be tainted. We really cannot rely on others to do our vetting. We have to develop ears for hearing what is true. And we have to decide for ourselves if we have the stomach for honest facts. It is neither comfortable nor easy. And I have seen in my own research as I get closer to a truth Even court dockets or records will be altered or used to cause confusion. It's just a database after all, and authorities have no problem dipping into that pool and getting a $12 an hour employee to make a change. She needs her job. If asked, she will make the change. And then change it back later. No questions asked. Oftentimes, these changes will be done just to provide a warning shot across the bow to the researcher. The message being, we control the sources. We can change records, and we can change yours. That's the essential message. And then we have the anonymous blog. That's a good one, a good model. There you are putting your keywords into a search engine as a researcher, not even using Google as the search engine, and up pops an anonymous blog that you've never seen before. 
usually on Blogger, by the way. Good old Google. Google was heavily funded by federal agencies early on, so it's heavily utilized by the same for their own purposes. I've come across two anonymous blogs in this research, which sent me down specific diversionary paths, where if taken seriously, would wreak havoc in my understanding. And that brings me to where I want to go today with this podcast. The case of the kid survivor, Artie Ray Dufer, and the era from which he found himself entangled, the 1970s. I want to start with this current civil case, filed in April 2017 in federal court in Washington, D.C., case number 1-17-CV-00677, for any of you actually keeping track of these things. <laughs> the subject of the case is defer being held past the expiration of his sentence and being denied his legal release, which was to occur in May 2016. He has now been held two years past the date of his legal release. He has completed his sentence for the 1979 shooting at the U.S.-Canadian border of Kenneth G. Ward. His civil case is being litigated pro se, meaning by himself, without a lawyer, but with the assistance of a legal helper someone who allegedly is very knowledgeable about law and has worked for the ACLU and a nonprofit organization who helps federal prisoners. But I have to say, his civil case makes no sense. And when I say this, I do as someone who is not a lawyer, but who has read many legal briefs, and has seen the outcome of many legal motions. Earlier, there was a motion filed by Dufer calling for an unspecified hearing and notifying the court that a lawyer who has a history of doing defense work for the very agency who opposes Dufer's release, and that's uh, the Department of Homeland Security, was going to represent Dufer. Clearly a conflict of interest, but also there was no upcoming hearing scheduled and the judge responded saying so. And the attorney, that attorney, never appeared in Dufer's case, ever, which makes sense, but which made the motion seem senseless. Next came the odd filing in December 2017 by the court that mail sent to defer from the court was returned undeliverable and unforwardable. But defer had not moved. He was still in the same prison. That did cause a lot of concern And maybe that was the point. Another shot across the bow. 
In May 2018, the judge dismissed the case, granting the Parole Commission's motion to dismiss for defers failure to state any legal claim that could be addressed by the court. He also stated on the order dismissing the case, final order. In the memorandum backing his reasons for the dismissal, the judge described all the pieces defer would have needed to be successful in his case, but which were not included. And he made some false statements about defer's history. For example, stating defer had been responsible for maiming a police officer in Seattle when he attempted to escape from King County Jail while awaiting trial. There was an attempted escape, but the officer was shot by someone who came to rescue Dufer from the jail, someone who Dufer knew as a kid in DVI, Duell Vocational Institute, in California, and someone who drove up from California to rescue him. This is L, who I have mentioned previously, and I'm just referring to him by his uh, initial of his first name, L. L served some time in state prison for assisting with that escape and for shooting the officer. And that's in um, the state prison archives, confirmed that. Defer never shot the officer and was never accused of it previously. But the judge in this civil case listed him as the guilty party in black and white in his memorandum supporting his order. Clearly it was a mistake at best, or it was a diversion. So a week later, Defer had his next scheduled parole hearing about his release. And it went as expected, with the examiner stating he would never be released and the Department of Homeland Security again making their appearance from Seattle, allegedly appearing on behalf of the victim. Although this too is questionable, how can they represent the victim, Kenneth Ward, the customs agent? They have to be approved by the PC, the Parole Commission, to do this. Were they? Defer does not seem to be given notice of this as required. And what about the implications regarding the drug bust that occurred two days before the shooting of Kenneth Ward, in which these agents, colleagues of Ward, were involved in acting under the color of the law. So after the hearing, another filing appeared in the civil case of Defer. It was filed on June 27th, several days past its deadline. Now, why would this deadline be missed in this filing? It apparently is also missing two pages. That was pointed out by the Parole Commission's attorneys. And it asks for the court to appoint an attorney for Dufer and to address issues in the order, the judge's order. And it asks the court for defer to be allowed to amend the original complaint. But the case is already dismissed. So how can these things even be requested? Shouldn't they have been requested early on in the case? 
just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's also bizarre that only defers filings in his case have a lag of days between the filing date and the date they are entered into the court history or what's called the docket. For instance, defer filed this on June 27th, but it states it was entered into the docket on July 1st. But July 1st is a Sunday, and the court's not even open. On July 3rd, the Parole Commission filed their five-page opposition to his motion. That is within one business day of when they allegedly could have received it. As they said, they downloaded it. It did not have and had not received, excuse me, a mailed copy yet. It's pretty hard for lawyers to produce a document like that within one business day. I mean, it, it would take a great effort, and there's no real reason to do it in such a short time period. It doesn't even make sense. The case is dismissed. I mean, it's it's really odd. In their opposition, they mention how the filing is late, which appears to be true. And that's pertinent because the court can say, well, the filing was late, so we don't have to consider it. But they also make a very bizarre assertion. They state, because of a 1983 law, that they, the Parole Commission, cannot be sued for any wrongful actions they take when acting under, quote-unquote, the color of the law. Now, certainly, they too could have said this early on, but they didn't. Acting under the color of the law. I think that is what the customs officers were doing at the border that evening in 1979. I think that was mentioned in that letter written to the Parole Commission. That's my dog having a joyful time. It seems like these last two filings, and maybe even those prior, are a kind of theater. But for what audience? They remind me of the anonymous blogs that appear as diversionary tactics for a researcher like myself. They certainly are not helping defer, it seems. And where is defer in all of this? Behind locked doors, controlled by these very authorities. And where are his rights? Diminished, it seems. And where is the neutral reliability of the courts? Gone, it seems. All subservient to the new forms of theater of corrupt authorities, of false authorities. More often I find myself asking, do inmates become extensions of this kind of theater when in prison? I think it's very likely. And history has shown that they may even be used in larger forms of theater created by corrupt authorities in exchange for getting to live on the outside, but not truly ever being in freedom. I'm going to give you a hint to where I was led via the anonymous blogs in my research this week. L and his friend D 
were both in DVI, Dewell Vocational Institute in California, with Dufer when they were in their teens, their late teens. And when Dufer was out on escape from DVI and living in Washington State, L called him back to California to train people with his expertise in military strategies at Tribal Thumb or the Wellspring Communion in Humboldt County, California. This was sometime around 1978. L also introduced Defer to his wife, Marie. She was with L when they met Defer at the bus when he arrived in California. Now, those specific facts came from Defer himself. L and D then drove to the Seattle area, robbed banks, and allegedly were waiting to rescue Dufer as he hit the street after escaping from jail, where he was housed awaiting trial in 1979. And that set of facts came from news articles and from the trial documents of Defer. So L was the escape assistant with the vehicle, guns, and money, allegedly. This was, again, in news articles from the time and in the, in the uh, trial documents for Defer. L also shot a police officer as the escape failed, as L was parked at the wrong door of the jail or the courthouse where the jail was housed, near where the jail was housed. Had he parked at the correct door, the escape may have not failed. I know a little bit about L's history, as it's part of the 1970s history in California. It also crosses Carl Harp's history, as they were in prison at the same time, in Washington State Prison, in Walla Walla, L was in that prison when Carl was murdered. So, which from an outsider's perspective, that history, that 1970s history in California, looks like a test bed for federal agencies of all sorts of controls on human subjects. And the more facts that come to light, the more this appears to be true. And I shouldn't just say the 1970s, also the late 1960s. So I was, in fact, checking a couple things related to L and L's history because of the court's recent statement about L and his, and not and his, and this anonymous blog appears with tens of pages about a group who L knew back then in the late 1960s before he met Dufer, before DVI. It's a pretty notorious group. And I knew about his association with it because I'd seen references to it to him before online. And I shied away from, mention, from mentioning it uh, previously. But yesterday, here comes this blog 
And what does it say? That L, prepare yourself here, <laughs> that L was involved in planning an escape for Charles Manson. That was the group that L had associations with in the 1960s, late 1960s. And that he was going to involve, he, L, was going to involve hijacking a plane and killing passengers one by one until Manson was released. That's one outrageous claim in an anonymous blog. I tried to verify this statement, but I saw no other mention of it anywhere, just on the anonymous blog. So I am assuming it was placed there so it could be found. And this is what I mean by diversions. In the 1970s, it appears the federal, that federal agencies often used the sons or daughters of career military personnel to engage in acts of what can only be called theater to be used to discredit or disperse real acts of, dis- real acts of dissent. L was the son of a high-ranking military careerist. And... There were clear and established acts of this kind of theater during the 1970s. The SLA, or the Symbionese Liberation Army, was one act of such theater. And the Manson family may have been another. The deeper one goes into the fact patterns, the more true this appears to be. And Tribal Thumb and the CO, which I've mentioned before, of which Dufer was recruited into by L, may have been another. Had L not called Dufer to come down to Tribal Thumb, Dufer would not, on his own, have been part of that group. Nor would he have met Marie, both of which resulted in the shooting of Ward and his life in prison. The SLA caused the public to fear organized dissenting groups. The Manson family caused the public to fear hippies. And Tribal Thumb and the CO caused the public to fear alternative food distribution or food co-ops. There was a clear reason for federal agencies to want these groups to be formed. And they were effective. The outcome was exactly as described there. All of these groups used ex-cons at their center, so they were the leaders, who were charismatic and forceful. All used various forms of behavior modification and drugs mostly hallucinogens, to lure group members. And horribly, all included the killing of innocent victims, American citizens, and the destruction of innocent lives. If it was true that they were involved, 
the federal agencies were involved and the military. These were acts of war by our own federal agencies and military against our own citizens. And individuals like Dufer, Carl Harp, or Sirhan Sirhan, or all the others were, it seems, seen as the expendable ones from poverty. Those whose lives could be used and discarded. And if they fight back as Harp did, they are tortured as they are being killed in prison. Harp was allegedly raped with a metal pipe until he died while being restrained with a drug that paralyzed his muscles but kept him conscious. And if they remain obedient in prison, like Dufer or Sirhan, the parole commission feels free to break laws to hold them beyond their sentence, humiliate them and ridicule them, and abuse them verbally at the hearings. And the court will back up such actions. So yes, as the PC stated in its opposition in Dufer's case on July 3rd, 2018, they have immunity from any accountability for their bad acts. But I would add, they do not have moral immunity. So although researchers like myself may be led down diversionary paths or may have their own lives threatened or destroyed through the abuse of such authority. The obstacles placed to create such a turn in themselves reveal what story is desired to be hidden and what is desired to be told and by whom. So learn to listen for yourself with your own ears. Do your own vetting. And that's all I have for tonight. Good night.